Imagine, you and your girlfriend meet a nice couple while you're on holiday in Hong Kong. The exotic gems dealer invites you back to a resort in Thailand and you decide to join him for the possibility of adventure and mystery. It'll be an adventure for sure. After some drinks you start to feel ill and you pass out. You wake up confused but the man you know as Elaine is at your side with tea claiming you must have gotten food poisoning. There's a knock at the door and you hear yelling but it's in French. Your hosts rush you into another room where you finish the tea the man brought you. You feel dizzy and when you wake up you and your girlfriend have ropes around your necks. You smell gasoline as blackness sets in. Then a flash of heat and light kicks your adrenaline in, but it's too late. You thrash around, fully engulfed in flames, and then it's all over. What do you want to call me a murderer for? I've never killed anyone. I don't need to kill anyone. I think it. Believe me, if I started murdering people, there'd be none of you left. <laughs> Hello friends and enemies, hello and welcome to another episode of Exploring Evil. As always, I'm your host Jay, and through this podcast I bring you stories of lesser known serial killers, the wild, the wicked, and the depraved. I would like to extend you an invitation to subscribe to the show so you won't miss a single episode. Leave a 5 star rating and write a review. It really does help out. I've also started another, more discussion-based podcast on the paranormal. With my co-host Ryan, I discuss the paranormal like UFOs, reincarnation, black-eyed kids, the Conjuring movie universe, and Project Bluebeam. We also did a show on well-documented cases of children being raised in the wild, which, while not technically paranormal, was riveting indeed. The show is called Cryptique, and you can find it everywhere you find Exploring Evil. As far as Exploring Evil goes, you can email comments, questions, and case suggestions to exploringevil at gmail.com. You guys email me all the time that you like international cases, which is fine, but you'll have to put up with my pronunciations. Ho-Chand Bonani Gurumuk Charles Sobraj was born on April 6, 1944 in Saigon. To an Indian father and Vietnamese mother. I'll be referring to him as Charles or Sobraj for the rest of the episode. Charles' parents were never married and his father denied paternity. Classy. Stateless at first, Sobraj was taken in by his mother's new husband, a French army lieutenant stationed in French Indochina. While he was never officially adopted, it is reported that his stepfather was good to Charles. But he felt neglected in favor of the couple's other children, which seems like it happens more than it should. But it's also hard for me to imagine loving anyone as much as I love my children. Sobraj continued to move back and forth between Southeast Asia and France with the family. 
There's some research that suggests that children who are frequently moved, especially between such different cultures, develop a sense of instability and not belonging anywhere. Neglect and abandonment seem to be recurring themes in his life. He began his life of crime as a teenager and was soon convicted of a burglary. He did his time at the infamous Poise Prison, just outside of Paris. 1963 would be the first of many years behind bars for Sobraj, and he quickly adjusted to life in prison. It was brutal and cruel, and a small half-Asian teen like Charles should have been fresh meat for predators in the prison. However, Charles knew karate, and he used it to defend himself. Poissy Prison near Paris was a terrible place. It was built in the 16th century as a convent and converted into a prison by the agnostics of the French Revolution. High stone walls separated prisoners from the outside world, and the individual cells were so small they were used only for sleeping. During the day, the prisoners were lumped together in pens, sorted into groups based on their ferocity, sanity, and nationality. It is a horror, so Braj biographer Thomas Thompson quotes a visitor as saying, one enters the place and chills pass through the bones like stepping into a cellar. Each moment I am inside, I am repelled. Sobraj's behavior in jail was indicative of things to come. Prisoners were forbidden to keep books in their cells, but not Charles. Infractions that would have brought harsh punishments were not enforced around Sobraj. He portrayed himself as so pathetic he attracted the special attention of one of the volunteers who visited the prisoners. Félix Descogne was a wealthy young man who came to Poise each week to help prisoners with letters, resolve simple legal issues, and provide companionship. Charles quickly latched on to Félix, whom he treated as a savior and a role model. The men struck up a friendship during the time Charles was imprisoned, and Félix even tried to reconcile father and son, as well as Charles with his mother, with limited success. He provided Charles with reading material, emotional stability, and encouragement as the young man wasted away his days in Poise. After he was paroled, he moved in with his friend Felix and resumed his criminal lifestyle, but he was much more skillful and vigilant. He straddled two very different worlds. In one, the bright world of Felix Descogne. It was filled with work and service and interaction with some of the best Parisian families. The other world was the darker, more sinister place where Charles Sobraj felt at home, the Parisian underworld. Chantelle Copagnon was a beautiful young Parisian woman living at home with her parents when she met Charles Sobraj at a party. Instantly, she was taken with the seemingly well-educated, affluent young man who told her of his adventures in the Orient and Dakar and his fictitious, wealthy family back in Saigon. He spoke like a poet and courted young Chantal, despite her parents' initial disapproval of their daughter's new boyfriend. 
There was no way her father, a traditional French Catholic, would allow his daughter to marry a Vietnamese half-breed, no matter how rich he said his family in Vietnam was. Charles proposed to Chantal, and she accepted, but Sobraj was arrested on that same day. Kind of takes the spark out of things, doesn't it? But Chantal was smitten, and when Sobraj was sent back to prison for an additional eight months, she stood by him, pledging chastity, and telling her friends and co-workers that her boyfriend had been called up by the military. Once free, Charles began accumulating riches through a series of burglaries and scams, usually involving precious gems. He was also passing bad checks all over France, and it was only a matter of time before the police realized that the common link to a rash of burglaries in affluent homes was that Charles Sobraj had recently been at the locations. Authorities were soon on to the serpent and sought his capture. Asking Felix, who had re-entered his life, if he could borrow a car for a day or two, Charles loaded his worldly possessions and his pregnant wife and left France. The couple worked their way across Eastern Europe, passing bad papers, robbing people who befriended them, and leaving a trail of crimes and victims in their wake. Just a modern-day Bonnie and Clyde. By the time they reached Istanbul and Felix's stolen MG, authorities had been visiting their friends in Paris, looking for the couple. In Bombay, Chantal gave birth to a baby girl who they named Usha. Charles and Chantal integrated into expatriate French society on the subcontinent. Charles, the highly agreeable and bright psychopath, was quickly accepted by some of the highest ranking French citizens in India. And Chantal, a striking and personable young woman with a delightful baby, was just as welcome at the women's teas and parties. This early in their marriage, Chantal was still blissfully unaware of her husband's thieving ways. He would talk to her about his, quote, business, and on more than one occasion she would act as an unwitting accomplice to his schemes, but for a stretch of several months he operated successfully without any police interference. During much of 1970, Sobraj operated a stolen car brokerage operation, obtaining hard-to-find American and European autos for homesick Frenchmen and wealthy Indians with a passion for Western cars. Charles would either steal the cars or fence stolen cars in Pakistan or Iran, then bring them over the border to India, greasing the palms of greedy Indian border guards who were willing to overlook the lack of import paperwork. He would then gain legitimate title to the vehicles by turning them in as stolen and buying them back at auction. Then he would sell them to grateful friends at a great profit. His business put him on the road much of 1970 and 71, leaving a lonely and homesick Chantal in Bombay, often wondering where Charles had gone. To appease her, he brought her back beautiful jewelry, most likely stolen or burgled. Sobraj's growing profits went towards his budding gambling addiction. Charles lost most of his money at a Macau casino prompting a liquidation of the jewels he gave to Chantal. Pawning the jewelry was inadequate to pay his gambling debts, literally putting his life at risk from casino collectors who are much more brutal than their American and European counterparts. 
Luckily, Charles was introduced to a Frenchman who had a plan to obtain enough money for Charles to pay off his debts, but also to live quite comfortably for some time. But this jewel store robbery was doomed from the beginning. Breaking into a hotel room above a store in the Swank Hotel Ashoka in Delhi, India, Charles and his crew intended to drill through the hotel floor and drop down into the store during the night. So they were going to try and be cat burglars. Seems like something you'd see in a Hollywood movie. Or a Bollywood movie. But after three days of drilling with little progress, it was clear the plan would fail. I think I saw this on an episode of World's Dumbest Criminals. But the crew then lured the owner of the store, delightfully unaware of the drilling going on above his head, up to the room on the idea of meeting a rich client. Sobraj attained the keys to the store at gunpoint and proceeded to empty the cases. Escaping to the Delhi airport with a bag full of stolen gems, Charles was forced to abandon his take at customs when the store owner escaped his bonds and notified police who sealed off the airport. Charles left $10,000 in cash and even more in jewels as he returned empty-handed to Bombay. Shortly after returning to Bombay, he was pulled over by police in a stolen vehicle and based on eyewitness identification, he was arrested for the attempted jewel robbery at the hotel. He was taken to Bombay's prison, Tihar, and from there he staged the first of his dramatic prison escapes. Pretending to have a bleeding ulcer, Charles was taken to a local hospital where he was diagnosed as having appendicitis, even though there was nothing wrong with him. Recovering from a needless surgery, Charles convinced Chantal to help him escape from the hospital by drugging his guard. It's not known where he attained all these poisons and drugs that he used, but apparently in this case, they used chloroform to overpower the guard. After doing so, Chantal crawled under the covers in Charles' bed and took a dose of chloroform herself to erase suspicions that she had conspired to help her husband escape. He was recaptured shortly thereafter, and both Chantal, whose unconsciousness had failed to convince police of her innocence, and Charles were taken into custody. Chantal was released shortly after on bail. Sobraj had to borrow money for bail from his father, and the couple soon afterward fled to Kabul. There the couple began to rob tourists on the hippie trail and were arrested again. The hippie trail is the name given to the overland journey taken by members of the hippie subculture and others from the mid-1950s to the late 1970s between Europe and South Asia, mainly from Turkey through Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, and into Nepal. It was also known as the Hashish Trail, henceforth attracting hippies and counterculture. The hippies tended to interact more with the local population than the traditional sightseers did. The Sobrajas lived comfortably in Kabul, but soon the travel bug bit Charles and he took his family to the airport. He had neglected, however, to pay the hotel for two months of rent and he was arrested by Afghan police. Again, he plotted escape. I can't imagine the balls on somebody that commits all these crimes in these countries where you get your hand cut off, allegedly, if you get caught stealing. At least that's what we're told. 
In Afghan prisons, inmates are responsible for obtaining their own food by employing runners, often young beggars. If an inmate has no money, he starves. At least in America, you get three hots and a cot. Charles had his runner purchase a syringe with which he drew his own blood and drank it, making it look like he had an ulcer. When he was taken to the hospital, he managed to drug his guard once again. He escaped to Iran. For the next year, he flew around the Eastern Hemisphere, never settling anywhere long enough to arouse the suspicions of the local police, although he continued to support himself through theft. He often traveled with as many as 10 passports, some bought, some stolen. So how many of those 10 passports were obtained through murder? Charles no longer used his given name. Instead, he changed identity at the drop of a hat, depending on the passport he held. He would later tell police that during 1972 and 1973, he traveled to Karachi, Pakistan, Rome, Tehran, Kabul, Yugoslavia, Bulgaria, and as far north as Copenhagen. Compagnon, though still loyal to Sobraj, pledged to leave her criminal past behind and return to France, vowing never to see him again. So Sobraj was joined by a new partner in crime, his younger half-brother, Andre, in Istanbul. They partook in various criminal activities in both Turkey and Greece. Ultimately, Andre would pay dearly for his irrational desire to follow his brother. They pulled off a couple of minor heists in Turkey, then fled to Greece when things got too hot and mugged a few tourists in Athens before they were arrested. Charles banked on the hope that the Greeks and Turks, historic enemies, would never share information about the two brothers who preyed on tourists. Charles convinced Andre that it would be easy to make authorities think Charles was Andre and Andre Charles. Sobraj was a wanted man, and if he pretended to be Andre, whose crimes were minor in the eyes of Greek justice, he could walk out of prison in a few weeks. Later, when he was safely across the border, Andre could simply tell the Greeks that he was the real Andre Durot, and that they had released the wrong man. They would then set him free. Brilliant for the serpent. The plan nearly worked, but when the Greeks decided to throw the book at the two men, Charles was forced to fall back on another plan. Once again, feigning illness, he managed to escape from a police van taking him from a hospital to prison, and he disappeared. In a few days, Andre went to the warden and revealed that they had let Charles Sobraj, not Andre Durot, escape. Sadly for him, the angry Greeks elected to turn Andre over to their Turkish enemies who were not prepared to be merciful. After a trial, Andre was convicted of theft and sentenced to 18 years hard labor. A hedonistic serial killer is separated into three categories, the lust killer, the thrill killer, and the comfort killer. A comfort killer is someone who kills for money or other material gains. For example, they might murder their spouse in order to receive an insurance payout, or they might kill a sibling for the sake of an inheritance. These killers are known to use poison to commit their crimes. Close contact is not a necessity, nor are they likely to torture the victim or mutilate the body afterwards. The kill is simply a means to an end.
In this case, that end is usually financial gain. A thrill killer is a hedonistic serial killer who gets a thrill out of murdering people. For example, hunting their victim or seeing their terror may give them an adrenaline rush. Witnessing their victim's fear gives them a high that they find extremely pleasurable. In other words, the suffering of their victims excites them. This is the type of killer who will murder someone just so they can know what it feels like. It is the act itself that motivates them. Email me and let me know what category the serpent fits into. On the run, Sobraj financed his lifestyle by posing as either a gem salesman or drug dealer to impress and befriend tourists whom he defrauded. In India, Sobraj encountered Marie-André Leclerc from Quebec, a tourist looking for adventure. Charles met Marie while she was sightseeing and managed to convince her to return to Bangkok after her vacation ended. When Marie returned to the Orient with a bag full of love letters Charles had written her during their months apart, she was shocked to find that he had hooked up with a Thai woman named Mai, whom he had described as his secretary. Marie's love for Charles was unreasonable. She was unable to see any evil in him and was even willing to put up with his indiscretions. Years later, as she deteriorated in Tihar prison awaiting trial, she wrote to Charles, who had already found a new lover. Mai is 12 years younger than I, and fresher. Need a woman who can live under any conditions, any climate. As for me, I'm old, tired, rarely dynamic or smiling, with a bitter character that can't adapt due to my advanced age. Mai must remain with you. The important thing is that you don't find yourself alone, that you have someone who loves you. She would also later write, I swore myself to try all means to make him love me, but little by little I became his slave. Somehow Charles convinced Marie to become his partner in crime and they met up with an Australian professor and his wife who were vacationing in Thailand. Inserting himself into their lives, Charles skillfully won over the Australians who thought they had discovered a real friend. Charles and Marie served the Aussies coconut milk laced with powerful sedatives. When the couple was asleep, Charles ransacked their hotel room, stealing several thousand dollars in cash as well as their passports, wedding rings, and plane tickets. Sobraj began building a family of sorts, with himself at the head. Sounds like someone wants to be a cult leader. As Mai floated around the sidelines, Charles and Marie took in a wandering French boy named Dominique. Over a period of days, Charles subtly administered enough poison to make Dominique ill with what appeared to be dysentery. Charles kindly offered the use of his home while the boy recovered. Normally dysentery resolves itself quickly or kills its host through dehydration, but Dominique had a hard time recovering. In reality, Sobraj was keeping Dominique a little ill to make him dependent. Once it was made clear that Dominique was in Charles' debt and the boy accepted his position, his recovery was fast-tracked. As the youth grew healthy, Charles added two more young men, Yannick and Jacques, former police officers in the French colonies. Rather than poison them, he wooed them with wine and song, and while they were enjoying a night out on the town with Marie, Charles slipped away and stole their passports and savings. Do not worry, he assured the two frantic young men. 
They could stay with him while new passports were acquired in Bangkok. Any compensation would be worked out later. The final addition to Charles' circle was a young Indian named A.J. Chowdhury. As dark as Charles, A.J. quickly became his lieutenant and accompanied him everywhere. A.J. was a confident collaborator with Charles who could be counted on to come through in even the most delicate circumstances. The serpent seemed to always have poison, sedatives, and fake documents in his possession. Charles Sobraj and A.J. Chowardy committed their first known murders in 1975. Most of the victims had spent some time with the pair before their deaths and were, according to investigators, recruited by Sobraj and Chowardy to join them in their crimes. Sobraj claimed that most of his murders were really accidental drug overdoses, but investigators believed the victims had threatened to expose Sobraj, which was his real motive for murder. The first victim was a young woman from Seattle, Teresa Knowlton, who was found drowned in a tidal pool in the Gulf of Thailand wearing a flowered bikini. At first it appeared the beautiful young woman had drowned after a night of hashish and beer. The authorities classified it as an accidental death by drowning. It was months later that Knowlton's autopsy as well as forensic evidence proved that her drowning, originally believed to be a swimming accident, was murder. The next victim was a nomadic Turkish Sephardic Jew or a Jewish person of Spanish or Portuguese descent with their own distinctive dialect of Spanish called Ladino, their own customs and their own rituals. Vitali moved in with the entourage and stayed for several days. He accompanied A.J. and Charles on a trip to a nearby resort town on the Gulf of Thailand and, according to Charles, opted to stay with friends he had met there. This puzzled Yannick and Jacques because Vitali had left his clothes in a closet in the apartment and had turned over his passport and traveler's checks to Charles for safekeeping. Several days later, a horribly burned body was found on the road to Pattaya, the resort destination of Charles, Vitali, and AJ. The male body showed signs of having been beaten, but it was clear to police that the poor man had been alive when he was doused with gasoline and set afire. Police assumed the man had been murdered and robbed by Thai bandits. Soon after, Dutch students Hank Bentanya and his fiancée Kaki Hemker were invited to Thailand after meeting Sobraj in Hong Kong. He introduced himself as Alain Dupuy, a gem dealer, and quickly integrated himself with the Dutch students. As a special favor, Charles sold Kaki a sapphire ring for $1,600 and invited them to his luxurious villa in Bangkok. He had to leave before them, he said, but he would send a car and driver to meet them at the airport. They, like so many others, were poisoned by Sobraj, who nursed them back to health in order to gain their obedience. As they recovered, Sobraj was visited by one of his previous victims, Hakim's French girlfriend, Charmaine Carew, who had come to investigate her boyfriend's disappearance. Fearing exposure, Sobraj and Chowardy quickly rushed the Dutch students out of the room. Soon after, Carew was found drowned and wearing a similar styled swimsuit to that of Sobraj's earlier victim, Teresa Knowlton. Months later, when an autopsy was performed, officials discovered that Charmaine had been strangled, not drowned, and that she had been suffocated with such force that bones in her neck had shattered. Now that sounds very personal. 
So he's showing signs of being a comfort killer and a lust killer. Although the murders of the two women were not connected by investigators at the time, they would later earn Sobraj the nickname, the Bikini Killer. He set fire to the young Dutch couple while they were still alive. In nearly all of his murders, he first disabled his victims by spiking their drinks. On December 18th, the day the bodies of the Dutch students were identified, Sobraj and Leclerc entered Nepal using the deceased couple's passports. They then made their way back to Thailand. Bangkok in 1976 was a place where anyone with the right connections and spare cash could evade unwanted police attention. Sobraj made sure he had those connections. So when the travelers who he had met began disappearing, the Thai police didn't really bother investigating. Instead, it was left to a junior Dutch diplomat looking for the missing Dutch couple who became Sobraj's nemesis. Back in Nepal, between December 21st and 22nd, Sobraj murdered Canadian Laurent Carrier and American Connie Jo Bronzage. The two were found dead in separate areas, both with fatal stab wounds. Kinda sounds like it's a thrill kill. Entering Nepal using Hank's passport, Sobraj met a pair of wandering westerners in Kathmandu. Laddie Dupar and Annabella Tremont met in Nepal and quickly became friends. Laddie had come from Canada to climb Mount Everest and Annabella was a restless California girl looking for some meaning in her life. They spent a good deal of time in the section of Kathmandu called Freak Street where anyone could buy anything from hashish to rubies. Laddie was counting the minutes until the weather cleared and Everest was climbable and Annabella was just out for an adventure. Details are vague about how they met Charles Sobraj in Kathmandu, but it wasn't long before a man's body was found in a field, burned, and slashed with a knife. While authorities were trying to identify the body, it was clear it was a Westerner because of its size. A second Westerner's body, positively identified as Annabella, was found nearby. She had been stabbed several times in the chest. Police got their first lead when Nepalese Customs reported that Laddie Dupar had left the country very shortly after the estimated time of Annabella's death. They deduced that Laddie had killed his new girlfriend and fled the country as soon as possible. They were confused, though, about the identity of the western male who had been found nearby. Sobraj and the clerk returned to Thailand using their latest victim's passports before their bodies could be identified. Upon his return to Thailand, Sobraj discovered that his three French companions had started to suspect him of serial murder, having found documents belonging to the murder victims. They broke into Charles's office and found dozens of passports and identity papers belonging to unfortunate tourists who had met up with Sobraj. The three Frenchmen escaped Sobraj's apartment and Thailand, heading home to Paris. Before they left, they told police what was going on in the apartment building. Sobraj's former companions then fled to Paris. Sobraj's next destination was Calcutta. All he needed was a clean passport and some money. He found both an Israeli scholar, Avoni Jacob, who died in a run-down Calcutta hotel room where he had been drugged and strangled. Jacob's passport and traveler's checks, about $300 in total, were missing. Sobraj used the passport to travel with Leclerc and Chowdhury, first to Singapore, 
then to India, and in March 1976, returning to Bangkok, despite knowing that the authorities there sought him for questioning. But luck was on his side, because the police, armed with the information from Yannick and friends, quickly brought the trio in for questioning for the Bikini murders. But it was an absurd investigation. The Thais were not interested in ruining their tourist trade by having a highly publicized trial. The clan was interrogated by Thai police in connection with the murders, but they were soon released. Meanwhile, Dutch diplomat Herman Nippenberg and his then-wife Angela were investigating the murders of the Dutch students. Nippenberg had some knowledge of, and had possibly even met, Sobraj, although the serpent's true identity was still unknown to the diplomat who continued gathering evidence. With the help of Nadine and Remy Giris, Sobraj's neighbors, Nippenberg built a case against him. He was eventually given police permission to search Sobraj's apartment, a full month after the suspect had left the country. Nippenberg found evidence, including victims' documents and passports, as well as poison and syringes. The criminal's next stop was Malaysia, where Chowdhury was sent to steal gems. Charles sent AJ to the mining towns to procure some gems, and he returned with several hundred carats of jewels worth about $40,000, which is worth almost $200,000 in today's currency. Charles intended to sell the jewels in Geneva to raise capital, but first he had to take care of one loose end. No one knows exactly what happened to A.J. Chowdhury in Malaysia, but when Charles met Marie at the airport to catch their flight to Geneva, A.J. was not with him. She inquired as to his whereabouts, but the look in Charles' eyes told her never to ask that question again. To this day, authorities believe A.J. Chowdhury, the partner in crime to so many of Charles's murders, had outlived his usefulness and lies buried somewhere in the steaming Malaysian jungle. It's believed that Sobraj murdered his former accomplice before leaving Malaysia to continue his and Leclerc's roles as gem dealers in Geneva. A source later claimed to have cited Chowdhury in West Germany, but the claim appeared unsubstantiated, so the search for Chowdhury continued. So far, two American women, two Canadians, a Turk, two Dutch citizens, a French woman, and an Israeli scholar had died in Southeast Asia under mysterious and similar circumstances. Calls for justice came from nearly every embassy. Sobraj started forming a new criminal group, starting with two Western women, Barbara Smith and Mary Ellen Ether, in Bombay. Sobraj's next victim was a Frenchman, Jean-Luc Solomon, who was poisoned during a robbery. The act was committed with the intention of incapacitating Solomon, but Sobraj had miscalculated the dose, and Solomon died as a result. His inability to get the doses right would come back into play sooner rather than later. Now let's get a quick word from our sponsor. Behold, Behold the mystery of the cosmos. Hello, friends and enemies. I hope you're enjoying Exploring Evil. But there's another dark podcast you may have been missing out on. It's called Cryptique, and my co-host Ryan and I discuss the paranormal, the occult, possessions, dark magic, and so much more. We've done shows on the Black-Eyed Kids, Zozo the Ouija Board Demon, referred to in The Exorcist, A Possessed Nun, and The Devil's Bible. 
We've also done shows on aliens, conspiracy theories, feral kids, lucid dreaming, and reincarnation. There's something for everyone. If you find comfort in the darkness, Cryptique is for you. You can find Cryptique everywhere you find Exploring Evil. The truth is out there. Welcome back to Exploring Evil. In July 1976 in New Delhi, Sobraj, joined by his three-woman criminal clan, tricked a tour group of French postgraduate students into accepting them as tour guides. Sobraj drugged them by giving them poison pills which he told them were anti-dysentery medicine. His plan was to wait until the students became drowsy from his drugs and then rob their rooms. But the pills worked too quickly, and all around him in the lobby of the hotel, students were dropping like flies. When someone realized that the only people who were ill were those who took their new friend's medicine, a trio of students wrestled Charles to the ground and sent for police. During interrogation, Sobraj's accomplices, Smith and Ether, buckled and confessed. Sobraj was charged with the murder of Solomon and the whole gang was sent to Tihar Jail in New Delhi. For Marie and the other two women, hell would have been better than Tihar Prison. Their food was comprised of bread and water with whatever else they could buy. The water came out of a standpipe in their cells once a day. If they weren't there to drink, they didn't drink that day. Rats and insects ran rampant in Tihar Prison. Rodents ran boldly through the bars of the cells. The toilet facilities consisted of a hole in the corner of the cell. But Charles knew how things worked in India, and concealed in his body were more than 70 carats of precious gems. Think about that the next time you put on some precious jewelry. Where have those diamonds been? Where have those rubies been? Charles had no fear of being left to rot in Tihar. He knew eventually he would buy his way out. In India during the mid-1970s, Indira Gandhi ruled with an iron fist through martial law and conditions were unforgiving. Nearly two years passed from the time that Charles Sobraj and his circle were arrested before he and Marie went on trial. Mary Ellen and Barbara had each tried to kill themselves out of despair. Charles, of course was fine. Charles Sobraj's trial is a wild story in itself. Andre Durot, who was granted early parole by the Turks, traveled to India at Charles' request to help him escape again. That's unbelievable considering that he got 18 years in prison after he tried to help his brother the first time. There was a mid-trial appeal to the Indian Supreme Court and a witness, Mary Ellen Ether, recanting her statement of seeing Charles drug Jean-Luc. Sobraj hired and fired lawyers frequently and toward the end of the trial went on a hunger strike to protest the inhumane conditions at Tihar. And as much of a piece of crap as Sobraj is, he's right. You really 
shouldn't be living under those conditions in a prison where the rats are crawling over you at night and there's a hole in the corner for you to use for the restroom and there not being enough food to go around. So I can get behind a hunger strike. But he ended up defending himself. The judge, however, was unimpressed with the theatrics and found Charles guilty of administering drugs with intent to rob, causing hurt to commit robbery, and the Indian equivalent to manslaughter, culpable homicide not amounting to murder. Marie was found not guilty, but was returned to Tihar to await trial in the poisoning of the French graduate students. She would eventually serve some time for that crime and be released on mercy parole when she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. She died at home in Canada, professing her love for the man who had ruined her life. Charles faced the death penalty, and the prosecution argued tirelessly for it. It was well known that he had killed many besides Jean-Luc Solomon, and that he undoubtedly would kill again. But Charles argued that time served in Tihar was punishment enough. Did Charles manage to buy off the judge? It's unknown for sure, but it is certainly a possibility. Around the world, law enforcement officials were astounded when the judge sentenced Charles Sobraj to just seven years in prison. We see that in the United States too. Sometimes murder sentences are less than rape sentences and less than drug trafficking sentences and certainly manslaughter sentences could be about seven years. Sobraj, who had entered with precious gems concealed in his body and was experienced in bribing captors, was living comfortably in jail. When Sunil Gupta arrived to start work at India's largest prison on May 8, 1981, the 24-year-old was surprised to learn that the position he was appointed for wasn't available anymore. That was until a bespectacled balding man dressed in a light brown suit stopped by to ask what was going on. Assuming the man to be a senior official at Tihar prison, Gupta explained the situation to him. He went straight into my superior's office. After a few minutes he came out and asked me to start work the same day. Gupta told This Week in Asia, later I discovered that he was Charles Sobraj. He played cards, badminton, and chess with prisoners and jail officials in Tihar, Gupta said. Contraband confiscated from his cell included a knife, crockery, and an electric heater. The serpent even managed to smuggle a voice recorder into prison, which he would use to record corrupt officials so that he could later blackmail them, a tactic Gupta suspects was used to secure his own position at Tihar on the day he first met Sobraj. Others to have benefited from his deceptive generosity included R.S. Rathar, an armed forces veteran and fellow Tihar inmate who Sobraj helped out when his family was facing financial problems, partly paying for his daughter's education. I returned the favor by standing surety for him at the time of release, Rathar said. Sobraj led a life of luxury inside jail, with a television and gourmet food, having befriended both guards and prisoners. Smart. If you can get them both on your side, you will live the lap of luxury in prison. Sobraj befriended a number of influential criminals while in Tihar with whom he set up shop, dealing in narcotics and selling drugs and liquor, according to a 1981 report from Indian Human Rights Body, the People's Union of Civil Liberties. The brilliant psychopath, as Richard Neville and Julie Clark later described him in their book, On the Trail of the Serpent, The Life and Crimes of Charles Sobraj, 
He was imprisoned in a 12-foot by 10-foot cell. But he was often allowed to roam the jail, including when he gave foreign journalists interviews for a price in which he confessed to at least 10 murders. These confessions were later recanted. It makes sense that he would confess to these crimes during an interview because he knew he could recant. That would allow authors and journalists a chance to interview him and get the juicy scoop that they were looking for without him worried about it being brought up in court later. Perhaps because of the confidence he exuded, Sobraj had a long line of romantic engagements. Even in prison, more than 30 women would routinely join him, some of them for visits of a sexual nature, according to Gupta. He used the guest house of one of the top jail officials to meet his girlfriends, the former Tihar prison worker said, adding that the serpent would shed his everyday garb of kurta pajamas, a long shirt paired with loose-fitting trousers, in favor of a suit worn with a matching scarf whenever he had a lady visitor. Not all of the women in Sobraj's life were his lovers, however. He also had confidants he described as, quote, his sisters. Indian journalist Hoinu Hazel was one of them. She contacted Sobraj in 1997 after reading about his life and crimes as a young post-grad student. Soon after receiving her first letter, Sobraj telephoned her. He said, Hello, Hoinu. This is Charles, recalled Hazel, who Sobraj would later gift a pair of gold earrings and a Parker pen from Paris. I couldn't believe it was him on the other side. He said that those people he killed were not good. They were antisocials. It definitely sounds like she's drinking the serpent's Kool-Aid. It's funny how even journalists that are trained in interviews can fall victim to his charm. He gave interviews to Western authors and journalists such as Oz Magazine's Richard Neville in 1977 and Alan Dawson in 1984. Neville was accompanied by his future wife, Julie Clark, who has frequently written about the subject. Clark has said that Sobraj sold the rights of his life story to a Bangkok businessman who sold them on to Random House. Because of Neville's hippie trail connections, Random House offered him a contract to go to Delhi to research the case, even though he and Clark, both journalists in New York City, had no experience in crime reporting. They were out of their depth, having to deal with Sobraj's creepy emissaries who kept them under surveillance and arranged for them to visit him in prison, where he described the murders in detail. Clark said she was very relieved when they left Delhi. In his interviews with Neville and Clark, Sobraj initially admitted to at least 12 killings between 1972 and 1976, though he later recanted, CNN reported. He claimed to have committed his first murder in 1972 by killing a taxi driver while in Pakistan. He later stated his actions were in retaliation against, quote, Western imperialism in Asia. He's a true social justice warrior. Sobraj's prison sentence in India was due to end before the 20-year Thai statute of limitations expired, ensuring his extradition and almost certain execution for murder in Thailand. So in March 1986, in his 10th year in prison, Sobraj threw a big party for his guards and fellow inmates, drugged them with sleeping pills, and walked out of the prison. Inspector Madhakar Zende of the Mumbai police apprehended Sobraj in Okokiero restaurant in Goa. His prison term was extended by 10 years, just as he had hoped. 
it's really smart because he was living well in prison even though it was a horrible prison but he knew if he escaped he would get time added which would keep him in prison until after the statute of limitations ran out for murder in Thailand. On February 17, 1997, 52-year-old Sobraj was released with most warrants, evidence, and even witnesses against him long lost. Without any country to extradite him to, Indian authorities let him return to France. Sobraj retired to a comfortable life in suburban Paris. He charged large sums of money for interviews and photographs. The rights to a movie based on his life were sold for over 15 million U.S. dollars. In 2003, Sobraj returned to Nepal, one of the few countries where he could still be arrested and where he was still eagerly sought by authorities. According to the Himalayan Times, Sobraj had returned to Kathmandu to set up a mineral water business. Going legit, huh? His return is thought to have been the result of his yearning for attention and over-optimism in his own intelligence. Joseph Nathan broke the story of Sobraj's return to Nepal in September 2003 after he spotted the bikini killer or the serpent or whatever you want to call him, dressed in blue jeans, a baseball cap, and trainers, playing low-stakes baccarat at the casino of a five-star hotel in the Nepalese capital. The journalist traced Sobraj back to a hotel in the Kathmandu tourist district of Tamal, where he discovered a man going by the name C. Gamura was staying. The mystery guest had told the hotel manager he was in Nepal to trade Pashmina Kashmir and set up a mineral water plant. Although the hotel didn't initially have a copy of his passport, I was sure it was the same Charles Sobraj because his middle name is Gurmuk, said Nathan. He acted on his hunch by approaching the man in a casino toilet a few days later. I asked him, You look familiar. Are you Charles Sobraj? Nathan said. To this, in a distinctive French accent, he asked, Who is he? A Bollywood actor? Nathan pointed out the man to S. Ramesh, then a counselor at the Indian Embassy in Kathmandu, who said he was easily able to identify Sobraj because of his, quote, prominent nose. I was a bit shocked to see him there because he disappeared from public view after he was deported to France from India in 1997, Ramesh said. By this point, Nathan had deployed a team of photographers to track Sobraj and managed to source a copy of his passport from the hotel, confirming his identity once and for all. On September 17th, his exclusive story, The Serpent Living Incognito in Tamil, appeared in the Himalayan Times. Two days later, Nepalese police launched a 4 a.m. raid of the casino where Sobraj was still playing Baccarat and arrested the wanted fugitive. Now, if you're playing low-stakes Baccarat at 4 a.m. in Nepal, you might have a gambling problem. He has claimed in past interviews that he was sent to the country by the CIA to catch Taliban guerrillas buying arms from Chinese triads, though the truth of these assertions has never been verified. And it's hard to believe anything that ever came out of Sobraj's mouth. The police reopened the double murder case from 1975. Sobraj was later sentenced to life imprisonment by the Kathmandu District Court on August 20, 2004 for the murders of Bronznich and Carrera. Most of the photocopy evidence used against him in this case had been gathered by Nippenberg, the Dutch diplomat, and his then-wife Angela, and of course Interpol. 
Sobraj appealed against the conviction, claiming he had been sentenced without trial. His lawyer announced that Chantal Compagnon, Sobraj's wife in France, was filing a case before the European Court of Human Rights against the French government for refusing to provide him with any assistance. Sobraj was represented by the infamous lawyer Jacques Verger, nicknamed the Devil's Advocate because his roster of clients included the Nazi Klaus Barbie, Slobodan Milosevic, and the renowned international terrorist Carlos the Jackal. If you don't know who these people are, Google their names just to find out. In late 2007, news media reported that Sobraj's lawyer had appealed to then-French president Nicolas Sarkozy for intervention with Nepal. In 2008, Sobraj announced his engagement to a Nepali woman, Nikita Biswas, who later participated in the reality show Big Boss, and that's big with two G's. The authenticity of the couple's relationship was confirmed in an open letter from American conductor David Woodard to the Himalayan Times. On July 7, 2008, issuing a press release through his fiancée, Biswas, Sobraj claimed he was never convicted of murder by any court and asked the media not to refer to him as a serial killer. It was claimed that Sobraj married his fiancée on October 9, 2008 in jail during Bada Dashami, a Nepalese festival. The following day, Nepalese jail authorities dismissed the claim of his marriage. They said that Biswas and her family had been allowed to conduct a tika ceremony along with the relatives of hundreds of other prisoners. According to WeddingILoveIndia.com, in Sikh religion, the ceremony is performed by a preacher who first recites the hymn, and after that offers the groom a date and applies the tilak or tika on his forehead, marking the engagement. Authorities further claimed it was not a wedding, but part of an ongoing Deshane festival, when elders put the vermilion mark on the foreheads of those younger than them to signify their blessings. One of his jailers told Paris Match in 2021, quote, It's a legend. There is no proof of their union. End quote. In July 2010, the Supreme Court of Nepal postponed the verdict on an appeal filed by Sobraj against a district court's verdict sentencing him to life imprisonment for the murder of American backpacker Connie Joe Bronzich in 1975. Sobraj had appealed against the Kathmandu district court's verdict in 2006, calling it unfair. Poor guy. On July 30, 2010, the Supreme Court upheld the life sentence issued by the District Court for the murder of Connie Joe Bronzich, plus another year and a 2,000 rupee fine for entering Nepal illegally. The seizure of all of Sobraj's properties was also ordered by the court. Sobraj's supposed wife, Biswas, and mother-in-law, Shakantala Tapa, a lawyer, expressed dissatisfaction with the verdict, with Talpa claiming that Sobraj had been denied justice and that the judiciary is corrupt. They were charged and sent to judicial custody for contempt of court based on these remarks. And that's bullshit. If you can't speak out against your government, then you're living in a terrible place. On September 18th, Sobraj was convicted in the Bhaktapur District Court of the 1975 murder of Canadian tourist Laurent Carrier. In 2018, Sobraj was in critical condition and had been operated on multiple times. Biswas told the media that his gaze and his eyes were mesmerizing and that his French charm had done everything. 
In 2017, she gave him blood to save him during an open-heart operation. He had received several open-heart surgeries and was scheduled for more. Now the 77-year-old ekes out what is left of his existence, mostly, quote, reading newspapers and watching television, end quote, according to a prison official in Kathmandu who spoke on the condition of anonymity. I have already taken from the past what is best for me. What helps me live in the present and prepare for the future, he told Richard Neville. If I play back a murder, it will be to see what I have learned from the method. I won't even notice the body. So that's Charles Sobraj's mentality. No remorse. Nothing but darkness. That's all we've got for you tonight on Exploring Evil. I hope you enjoyed the show. A quick reminder to subscribe to Exploring Evil on your favorite podcast platform. Leave a five-star rating and write a review. It will only take you a minute, but it would be a huge help for me. Email case suggestions to exploringevil at gmail.com. Tell all your friends and enemies about Exploring Evil and share with your friends on Facebook and other social media sites as well. Don't forget about Cryptique if you have an interest in the paranormal, as you can find it everywhere you find Exploring Evil. Thanks, friends and enemies, and have a great night.
Yeah.